0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine Seminar Series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at rcpheritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Um, I'm very grateful to the College for hosting this event and to Chris and Gail Davis for setting it all up. Thank you for your generosity. Um, we've a fair bit to get through, so I'm going to machine gun you through it uh, because there's another speaker in about an hour. Now, last year was memorable for the commemoration of Magna Carta, as in Gallipoli, the Battle of Luce, and the end of the war against J- Japan and Germany. A fairly momentous year. But the bicentenary of the Battle of Waterloo was a crucial event to remember and is often forgotten and its importance understated. So as we gaze on this magnificent painting in the Reichsmuseum of Wellington and his staff at Waterloo, we notice here that the wounded Prince of Orange being helped off his horse. And this is, of course, a reference to the human damage of war. And we're reminded that uh, every conflict, for every one person killed, there are between three and five people injured, both mentally or physically. And during the operations of Talik and Herrick in Afghanistan and Iraq, we tragically lost about 455 service personnel, but there are 1,900 alive injured people. But impressive results at Camp Bastion, the Level 3 hospital, mean that if you get in alive, that is with a pulse and a blood pressure, you have now got 93% chance of getting back to Britain, which is phenomenal. And all this started 200 years ago. This is when the militarization of medicine started at the end of this war. And I think what troubles me a lot is that military historians clearly can't have a clear grasp of medicine in the army because they haven't suffered, they haven't seen many of them. But I think it's important to emphasise the human aspect of conflict. And we're going to be reminded in no small way soon with the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme. So anyway, I want to take you, weave your uh, your way through the Battle of Waterloo, putting in some medical aspects during this uh, talk. Scotland, of course, played a disproportionately greater role than her British counterparts and neighbours. 18% of all casualties were Scots, at least 18% and 32% of medical staff at Waterloo was trained in Scotland or Scottish. And incidentally as well, uh, I think up till two or three years ago, nearly 50% of the Directors General of the Army Medical Department, the REMC now, have been Scotsmen. These are two little uh, memorials in the church near where I live, the parish church of Mould. Both men died in battle, Um, 1803 on the plains of Laswari in India and 1815 on the plains of Waterloo. They were cousins, they lived not far away and they knew each other well. They were both majors, they were both in light dragoon regiments and they were both killed by a fatal cannon shot to the chest, a macabre coincidence, but it emphasises the loss to families. Don't forget our population was only 10 million then. And the war was a very expensive and scattered war, all fueled by wind-powered-driven ships. And these are the naval and military sites of action. The war lasted 23 years. It cost £1.6 billion in old money. And we had a national debt of £750 million at the end of it. So it was a monumental challenge to everybody who took part. Um, and the loss of life in this war was proportionately greater than in World War One. 2.5% of the British population died during this war. We had to have control of the seas. And Trafalgar, of course, wasn't the only event. There were many other brave uh, uh, actions by both French and, and British sailors. But Britain was predominant on the ocean. And here, just a month before his nemesis at Trafalgar... We see the only meeting between Arthur Wellesley, lately returned from India, and uh, Admiral Lord Nelson. And the picture really is delightful because it shows that uh, that meeting, the baton of war, was passed over to the British Army. Sea dominance had been achieved, really. And three years after this picture was uh, drawn, Arthur Wellesley was leading the uh, smallish British Army into the Peninsular War, which I'm sure you've all heard of. Our adversary, after the French Republic, and this is Bonaparte at the age of 27, commander of the army of Italy, his physique has changed somewhat <laughs> over 20 years. And there are rumours that his ill health undermined his performance at Waterloo. It's rubbish. He was exhausted, that was all. He was, he'd done phenomenal feats of organisation, getting an army up to Belgium, or well, what, what, what was later called Belgium. But the only disease he suffered with on the battlefield was prolapsed hemorrhoids, probably from being in the saddle too long. And uh, this is found, the data is found in his brother's diary. And uh, the imperial surgeon Larrey, Dominic Lare, uh, diagnosed and treated the condition with leeches. But he was in no way less of a formidable uh, enemy at this time. He was 46, same age as Wellington, but had never faced the Duke in battle. The French army was monumentally large usually a million at a time, and ironically they lost a million men over the 23 years. And they had a large force for which they dom- had to dominate and police Europe, which became difficult. Um, the campaigns are divided in this war into three parts, from 1793 to 99 and 199 to 1807, and then the Peninsular War down here in Waterloo. The reason for this slide is That the early part of the war, up to 1799, cost us nearly half the casualties, about 300,000 men in all, because of the extremes uh, of climate and disease. And a lot of these lessons learnt here, and there weren't many lessons learnt, but a lot of them were forgotten during this sort of interval phase. But then... During the Peninsular War, where we learned a lot militarily, we, Wellington built up his army, was a brilliant learner, a great logistic provider, uh, with the help of an Aberdonian, of course, Sir James Macgregor, who built up the Army Medical Department. And together, they were a symbiotic force that really magnified the performance of the British Army and the Army Medical Department. But by the end of 1814, a year before Waterloo, uh, things got forgotten, people were tired, But I think we were dominating the French in our uh, surgical performance by then. The French were burdened by bureaucracy and overreaching themselves, and after the Russian debacle, the last action was fought in France, and the emperor was banished, as you know, to Elba with some of his imperial guard, and it wasn't expected that he would return. The war was over, the peninsular war exhausted many men, including a lot of doctors, and that was it, Well, it wasn't, because, actually, he came back. He landed, for various reasons, uh, on uh, the the southern coast of France, between Frazus and Antibes on the 1st of March, St David's Day, 1815. And he had a difficult journey north. And uh, he had, I'm not going to read all this, but he had an enormous challenge. What he had to do was to get a big enough army to defeat the first line of allies he would meet the Armée du Nord, as he called it. And so his hope was to defeat the first line of enemies, go to Brussels, sue for peace, because the Austrians and the Russians would take him out if we hadn't. So this complex strategic slide doesn't matter too much. Britain is up here. This is the uh, Belgian-French border and the River Sabre. And this is Charleroi, where the French army crossed in force on the 15th of June 1815. British headquarters, German and uh, Dutch headquarters in Brussels, various allied, uh, the Anglo-Dutch-German forces were here, and this was the Prussian uh, army here under Blucher. Wellington was the commander-in-chief of our uh, force. What Bonaparte wanted to do was to split these two forces apart and defeat one and then the other, which was a fairly bold and reasonable Ploy, if you had the wherewithal to do it, and he had a very good army. Note the north-south road. Here is Brussels. Here is Kattebra, and here is where the Battle of Waterloo will be fought. Um, Bonaparte's immediate inferiors were a little bit unreliable. He was short of good marshals by now after this long war. Michel Ney was unreliable on the battlefield. He was rather hot-headed, but very brave and Emmanuel de Grouchy was the newest in the Marshalate, a very brave and experienced cavalry commander, but in fact he, um, being the most recent Marshal, was not going to misbehave himself, and he lacked initiative on the day. The French army was a mixture of raw recruits and hardened veterans who wanted to have a crack at the British, or the English as they called them. And the medical staff of the French army were under the command of uh, Pierre-Francois Percy but he had cardiac failure during the campaign so Dominique Larray was the surgeon-in-chief to the imperial headquarters and an imperial guard and he was really the senior surgical figure there. He was actually taken prisoner by the Prussians during the battle, he was mistaken for Bonaparte and almost shot until a Prussian surgeon recognised him and he was taken before Blucher whose Life, uh, Blucher's son, he saved uh, that, that, that person's life. So he was given some gold coins and went off as a prisoner. Arthur Wellesley, minor aristocrat, rather haughty, and he didn't like communicating terribly well, um, uh, was a brilliant leader and logistician, nevertheless. And here we have Blucher, age 72, who was an alcoholic, um, partially schizoid, he'd been cashiered from the army but one of the bravest men that you can ever read about, and he was certainly going to keep his word to support the Anglo-Dutch German forces. Here we have the commander of the cavalry, Viscount Cumbermere uh, and Lord Uxbridge. Here the Prince of Orange who got wounded and Lord Arthur Hill. These were the three principal commanders under Wellington. Wellington's problem was that he was commanding an army he'd never commanded before. There were Germans who he didn't know and whose language they didn't speak were Dutch who had been fighting with the French a year previously. It was an infamous army of about 100,000. But he put strong units next to weak units. And don't forget that even Wellington's men, only half of them, had been in the peninsula. I'm not going to bore you with the details of the Army Medical Department, which is of course now the RAMC, But James McGregor was in Britain as a recently appointed Director-General. His brother-in-law was Senior Officer in Medicine on the battlefield, and we had hospital doctors, as we do have consultants now and trainees, and we have uh, regimental medical officers who were really GPs who could operate, who were the regimental doctors. So there were about 250 Allied medical staff. That's Grant. He's a very experienced doctor, but I've been able to find little about him. At Waterloo, And here's another picture of this wonderful paternal uh, father of military and medicine and surgery, James McGregor from Aberdeen. This bucolic looking figure is dressed as an assistant surgeon on the battlefield and um, gives you some idea of what had to be and what could be carried in. Water, bandages, tourniquets and sponges mainly. And this is a surgeon dressed as he would to operate in a field hospital or back at base. Um, and each regiment had three surgeons on Thursday the 15th of June you all know that the 4th Duke of Richmond's wife held a ball in a converted warehouse in Brussels and there was one doctor invited who was Grant, the senior medical officer and it was here at this ball it was about half past 11 that Wellington learned that Bonaparte had crossed in force at one point because he didn't know what Bonaparte was going to do and he said, he's humbugged me, and he sent from the east and from the north, in the dark, poor roads, no maps, no sat no street lighting, an army down south, 11 miles, to meet uh, the enemy. The Prussians had engaged them and then retreated, and after the border had been crossed, the French force split into two. This is uh, Grouchy and Bonaparte, who engaged the, French, uh, sorry, the Prussians at Ligny on the 16th of June. There were 19,000 casualties on the Prussian side and 12,000 on the French side. It was a very severe engagement with no prisoners taken. But the Prussians were beaten. Napoleon hoped they'd move east, but they didn't. They moved north, which is great because that's what he'd agreed with Wellington, to support him from the east when Waterloo was fought here. Grouchy was detached with 30,000 men to stop him joining Wellington, Blucher that is, and he failed to do that. Meanwhile there was a small action at Quatrebrough with 8,000 casualties and Marshal Ney led that assault on the Allied line which didn't work so Wellington retreated and uh, arranged himself at right angles across the North-South Road, uh, Three Mile Line, Defensive Line and Waterloo Village is just back here. So that's the strategic issue. There's Wellington doffing his hat to his rear guard as he retires up north to Waterloo and here are the poor old French, unmetalled rows, struggling with two or three pound cannon and cavalry, marching out behind them to face them. The stall on the night of the 17th of June was just appalling. It was uh, the worst storm of the year. They couldn't light fires, they couldn't uh, warm themselves up, they had to sleep in the mud, except for the privileged few. And the next day dawned a little bit brighter on Sunday the 18th of June. Not much happened, but you had about 150,000 men, uh, two armies a kilometre from each other, both in three-mile lines, facing each other, and the Prussians uh, coming in from the east later. I can assure you that no British soldier would have looked anything like this at the Battle of Waterloo. They'd have been caked in mud and absolutely filthy with torn uniforms and everything. I've done the march from Catrabrow to Waterloo and it's killing in full kit. But anyway, there we are. This is what a British uh, soldier would look like and the kit he had to carry weighing 60 pounds. That's a surgeon's plume. You always recognise the surgeon because he had a black plume, like the Judge Advocates Department. So we have 70,000 Allies facing about 75,000 French. Grouchy's gone away, which has reduced the French strength. The Prussians come in over the day. The French are very strong in good cavalry and good artillery. And um, so these are the combatants. And that is the playing field. We're looking east. I'm standing on the Lion Mound, which is still there today. This is one kilometre between the French line and the Allied line here. There are three defended farms, Papelot, La and behind me, Gouguermont Farm. These are vital strong points to break up French assaults. That's the crossroads where Wellington based himself mostly, and about here, just 400 yards down the road, is the main hospital of Mont Saint-Jean, which is being done up now, and we're putting a medical museum in it. It held 7,000 uh, patients during the battle. Note the slight de- Depression between the two lines and the reverse slope, which Wellington always used to shield his men, but you couldn't see much on the battlefield. It's like a dance; you only adore the partner you're dancing with. You don't have a notion of the whole ballroom, and this is the same thing in a battle. The uh, smoke—we didn't get smokeless powder in our machines till in our muskets and guns till about the Boer War. Anyway, we'll come back to this picture. There is Hougoumont. there is La Hessante. We were looking that way in that photo, and Papalot is here. There's the hospital, there's the Allied Anglo-Dutch-German line, there is the French line, and this is a little village to the east of Napoleon's position called Plance Noire, and it's there that the Prussians will begin their assault during the day, and later some more come and help here. But These are the main phases of the battle. Hougoumont. The battle, he wanted to take Hougoumont from us so that they could deplete our centre. It didn't work. Hougoumont was a a brabant farm, stoutly defended. Luckily, Bonaparte didn't use his artillery and the French never got in. But they made many very bold assaults on that farm. And there was a killing zone between a brick wall, which is about 10 foot high, very difficult to climb in uniform, and some chestnut and oak trees 30 metres away. And a lot of the men had to look after the wounds themselves because their ambulance at Montplaisir Farm was two miles back, and that's a real problem. The French broke into Hougoumont by the north gate at 12.30, but the gates were closed. we have just put up new gates by descendants of one of the families that helped to close the gates, which is rather nice. And uh, sadly, the French were all killed and Houguermont held. But the chateau was set on fire, so all the casualties had to be brought out of the farm, and put in the outhouses, many burnt to death, unfortunately. Here we can see some of the very important and superior numerically German forces who helped defend Houguermont. Here's a bearer attending to a British casualty, but you can see the wall, and here to the south, and here the farm on fire. The casualties at Houguermont speak for themselves. About 900 Allied casualties, the defenders but nearly 5,000 attackers. And this shows the persistence and bravery of the French assaults. We don't know what medical staff are at Houguermont. It's been a long problem for me trying to find out. One of the victims was Bamford Hesketh, who defended the farm. He was a foot guard and third foot guards. And his relatives afterwards, he'd been wounded there, said he'd never recovered and had severe suffering and heart-rending all his relations and I found out that he managed to stay in in the army and he'd had most of his lower jaw shot away but survived to get promotion and he died uh, about 13 years later. A remarkable story. This is a brigade major who got too close to the French and was shot at close range through the arm and he had a spent ball into his torso. Now the reason I'm telling you about this is I've handled this coat and it's very interesting because the through and through near shot is here, and he had his arm amputated. You can see where the surgeon split up his sleeve to do so. And here we have uh, a spent ball injury. We know it's a spent ball injury partly because there's a flap of coat turned, not a disc cut out. So a little bit of forensic clothing study. Burns were common, and uh, there were several fires around Hugemont. They were treated by cooling lotions laudanum and lead acetate or even laudanum solution put onto the burns. But as today, the risk is infection and fluid imbalance and pain relief. So Hougomont goes on till about five o'clock. It's a battle within the battle. But now the main French assault starts. There's a battery of 62 guns to the east of the north-south road and they open fire on Wellington's left at about quarter to one and they keep firing till half past one. They fire about 6,000 rounds, and this is followed by an infantry assault. The casualties are relatively light, because the target is thin, there's a lot of overshoot, and because the ground's wet, there's no ricochet. So uh, the French gunners worked very hard, but not to huge gain, unfortunately. And this is the sort of injury, and you'll see this image in this museum. This is Sir Charles Bell, who at one time was Professor of Surgery in Edinburgh. One of his excellent paintings... Watercolors of of the Waterloo victim. This is Wultz of the King's German Legion. He not only survived the avulsion of his arm by a round shot, but he recovered from three weeks' attack of tetanus as well. Here is Albrecht Heffer, a Brunswick Hussar, who was struck tangentially on the torso, the only way you could survive a cannon shot to the chest, I suppose. It's removed some soft tissue, broken some ribs, but he was a bit breathless for a few days with his lung bruising, and then he recovered. And then the major assault came by 17,000 fresh, uh, one one infantry corps uh, under Count Drouet d'Erlon. And they came up the dip onto the rise and they were actually pushing us back. We were being beaten because our troops there under Picton were weakened from being badly mauled at Quatrebrun. It was a very dangerous moment as they climbed the hill and were pushing us back. And at that moment, General Sir Thomas Picton um, who was a rather vulgar but uh, chap, but very good uh, leader and a very charismatic sort of person, uh, was spurring the troops forward, come on, you vagabonds, and he was shot dead through the right temple with this musket ball here. This is the memorial on the battlefield to where he fell. You can see the dip and the French lines in the distance, and we're on the Allied ridge. This is his top hat. He hadn't time to change his clothes from the um, Duke of Richmond's ball, when they uncovered his body for barrel, and termont, they found that two or three right ribs had been broken by a musket ball at Petrobras, and he hadn't told anybody because he wanted them bound up so that he could lead his division during the battle. It is rumoured that a British soldier was rifling his pockets before he was off his horse almost. Well, I suppose British soldiers did do that sort of thing. All soldiers did that sort of thing. The truth is, this is a French picture, and it was actually a French infantry chap who did it. So, it's just a rather amusing uh, <laughs> French challenge. <laughs> so, William Ponsonby was the commander of the Union Brigade. And you all know the Scots Greys charge at Waterloo. There they are. But unfortunately, they became a spent force after repelling very successfully Dernon's infantry attack. And that was the most important thing. They'd stopped a major assault by a heavy cavalry charge. But they were decimated by uh, cuirassiers <coughs> and lancers. And more than 50% of their number didn't come back. So we lost our heavy cavalry. One of the techniques these fearsome French lancers had was to pick off one man with one man. It's called enfourageur, which is like a swarm of bees. You pick off your man and you kill him. And here you can see the death of Sir William Ponsonby. He tries to escape, having been captured. And as he does so, one of the French lancer, NCOs, ends his life. His sword was taken and was discovered in France by somebody who bought the sergeant's house and sent it back to the family, which is rather a touching story. But the heavy dragoon sabre, or the thrusting uh, action of a spear-pointed sabre, as used particularly by the French, caused different kinds of injuries. These weapons weigh about three pounds and they're devastating in their effects. You can see that even in the Crimea, with a, a brass helmet, there's no complete protection against head injury. But these are the sort of wounds, more Bell pictures here, incidentally, that uh, a striking from above by a cavalry uh, trooper will inflict. And here is a French lancer who's had his tummy stabbed with a horse, uh, by a horseman, uh, and actually he recovered. His bowel is damaged, but it was stitched to the skin. And despite his looking upwards to heaven as if he's about to die, Bell said that he was the most cheerful patient. Interesting data on 29 troopers of the Scots Greys, 77 wounds, there were 48 out of the 77 wounds were lance strikes, but only 13 hit the body. This to me spells panic, you know, it's not very difficult to lance someone in the torso, it's a big target, but actually in the heat of war it is more difficult. The other thing is horse falls. Uh, Eight out of the... um, Twenty-nine troopers were severely bruised from falling under a horse, as had Marshal Blucher at the Battle of Ligny. Badly bruised, he was rescued by his ADC and given a liberal amount of schnapps and gin, which recovered him quickly. <laughs> at the time of the French uh, counter-assault on our heavy cavalry, um, this charming chap, who, uh, William de and his new wife, Madeline, three weeks married, Was struck tangentially on his right side by a round shot, and it broke eight ribs, it took them off his spine, and he had gross internal injuries. And he took a week to die, and his suffering must have been immense. But Madeline finds him after two days, and she writes a little book called A Week at Waterloo, and it's the most charming story you can imagine. Dickens even commented on it. It's a wonderful story of her last moments with her dear husband. So, the main assault has failed. And the Prussians are now seen at about two thirty, three o'clock, advancing towards Plonsnoir. So Bonaparte has to detach infantry, and he has few enough left. So what can he do to mount an- another assault? Well, impetuously, he orders the um, capture of the farm here, which would be a very good manoeuvre strategically, but it fails. So Ney, again impetuously, orders the uh, French cavalry to advance. Now you're looking at two attacks by two cavalry corps, each of 6,000 men, compressed into a one-kilometre front. You can't gallop, you can't canter, you trot, and you go up over the hill hoping to just pour into the Allied infantry and send them scatter, scatter them all over the place. And they must have been a fearsome sight. And certainly they were. But on the other side of the hill were 23 Allied infantry squares in which were the officers, some flags and the medical officers. And if three or four men were taken out by a round shot, you just closed up the square, and the wounded were dressed inside the square. And after two hours of these brave assaults by the French cavalry, they could do nothing. They'd fired their carbines, thrown their lances, they couldn't get in it. No horse will jump that wall. And so they stand off, and the British are running, the Allies are running low on ammunition, but it fails. So another major assault has failed. They were assisted greatly. This is G Battery, the Royal Horse Artillery, commanded by Captain Cavalier Mercer, who writes a wonderful diary. And he continues firing until the last moment, and they can go and shelter by the squares if necessary. But his artillery causes severe damage, even to French armour. This is a nice little picture here of a spent musket ball on our own breastbone, a stern, and it's impinged on the periosteum, caused a reaction... And the, the chap lived to be on 90, and I can just imagine all his grandchildren rubbing grandpa's lump from Waterloo. <laughs> nice little specimen at Guy's Hospital. Gunnar Butterworth, this is not Gunnar Butterworth, it's a photo from the American Civil War, who uh, underwent a similar injury, fell in front of a cannon, and his arms were blown off. And of course he had no hands to st- staunch his bleeding. So he managed to survive by walking over half a mile before he exsanguinated uh, near to the hospital at Mont Saint-Jean. And Mercer regretted not being able to help him, but he had to keep up, keep up a fearsome rate of fire. Meanwhile, at that village, ponce at the same time as the cavalry attacks, the Prussians were getting into the village, house-to-house fighting, no quarter, no prisoners were taken. But one French general of the Imperial Guard had to actually stop some of his men cutting wounded Prussian throats. The, the two nations loathed each other. I think probably from the French occupation previously. But I've been down some of the houses in Noire, and when you go down the cellars, they're still covered <coughs> with shots where the French or the Prussians destroyed uh, uh, wounded men hiding there. So now the French were fighting on two fronts. The Prussians had arrived. What was he to do next? Well, they had a big effort to capture this farm. The defenders were running short of ammunition and eventually the farm fell. And this was a very dangerous situation because this farm can shelter cavalry, light artillery, and plenty of infantry. So La Haysan fell at about half past six, and we were in real trouble. Our centre of our line was being thinned out mercilessly, and patients were pouring back into that main hospital. There were several attempts, this is one by the 5th Regiment of the King's German Legion, to relieve and retake the farm, which failed from the presence of French cavalry. Christian von Antida is my hero of Waterloo. This charming man, a great Anglophile, a German who commanded a brigade of King's German Legion infantry, very fine soldiers, realised his regiment had been destroyed, another one had been badly hit, so he rode on alone with his sword to attack the French, uh, committing suicide, and was killed by the French at uh, close range. But I think this man's sacrifice is a great story of bravery during the battle. Again, about the time the farm fell, there was a man called Fitzroy Somerset, who was uh, personal secretary to, military secretary to the Duke, and he got shot in the right arm, and he lost his arm at Waterloo. He was amputated by a surgeon called Gunning, who later worked at St George's Hospital. Everything went well. But when he went off as Lord Raglan, to command in the Crimea, commander-in-chief of the Eastern Force in the Mediterranean, he uh, really didn't do very well, and he was not helped by very poor logistics in the Crimea, etc., bureaucracy. And there's the spectre of the Duke admonishing poor old Raglan for his poor performance. So the last phase of the battle is about to come. Now the Prussians have been seen coming further up here from the East, von Zieten's Corps, at 7 o'clock to bolster up the weakened line. And so there was one last desperate gamble by Bonaparte, which is to send in ten battalions of the Middle Imperial Guard and the Old Guard, and he's sending them up the slope there to hit the Allies on echelon, so it was one square advancing, then another, then another, then another. <coughs> and they advanced in big squares. Their medical officers went with them. And they suffered terribly. After nearly punching a hole in the middle of the Allied line, who had desperately thinned out by now, um, some Dutch came to their help. Then the foot, our foot guards chased off these third chasseurs and then uh, these two lots and then there was another square that went up and I'll show you a picture of that in a moment. But These soldiers were very fine men, uh, experienced men who'd been transferred out of the infantry, survived four campaigns, they were tall and often highly decorated and never committed by Bonaparte unless it was absolutely necessary. But when the line was being weakened, there is La Haison, that's the north-south road, you can see the Dutch artillery fresh and uh, brigade of infantry coming to push the French away down the hill and it is at that moment while the Prince of Orange was encouraging them forward that he got his non-fatal shoulder wound which we know was healed by October and the ball clearly didn't enter the joint. That is the Boute du Lyon, it's as it looks today and it is a monument to the victory at Waterloo erected by the kingdom, uh, of the Dutch kingdom and that's a Belgic lion atop it there but it marks the spot where he got his uh, injury, and he was carried off the field. The foot guards, courtesy of Ma- Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, I'm afraid, stood up and repelled the third chasseurs, and finally Colborne's light uh, division wheeled to take the last square in flank, and the battle was over as the Imperial Guard was defeated. Wellington rise- uh, raises his hat for the men to advance, and as he goes down the hill, he gets parallel with the farm of La And a a, a random case shot comes over the neck of Copenhagen, his horse, and goes into the right knee joint of uh, Lord Uxbridge, his cavalry commander. And so he falls off his horse, and this is the apocryphal thing, my God, I think I've been hit, and Wellington says laconically, my God, so you have, sir. But actually it didn't happen. He was taken off his horse and his leg was amputated uh, south of Waterloo very quickly the imperial guard brave fellows that they were they lost 56% of their number in this final assault uh, retired in some order unlike the rest of the french army who was harried which was harried by the prussians wellington goes to write his dispatch in his headquarters at waterloo it's called the battle of waterloo not mont saint jean because his headquarters were <coughs> in waterloo here you can see his adc and great family friend alexander gordon a colonel Uh, dying after an amputation, bleeding quietly to death after the operation in his bed. The news of the victory comes to London. Some eagles are presented to the Prince Regent in London and the country goes mad and everything's very glorious and fine and a great relief after 23 years of war. But back on the battlefield, the problem is not so simple and not so nice. We have one medical officer here And you think that, well, even actually at Camp Bastion they wouldn't cope with this load. And that's the problem, that so many men would die of uh, severe injuries to bones, bleeding to death on the battlefield. Bodies had to be burnt quickly, and it took three weeks to clear particularly the French off the field. A lot of the French wanted to hide because they didn't want to be taken prisoner once more. But if you look at the density of wounds per mile of front at Waterloo, compared even to the Somme or El Alamein, Admittedly, our number total numbers are small compared to the but you 've got a terrific density of injured, which is a big problem and The problem also is that over the four battles of the campaign, Waterloo being the principal battle, you have nearly sixty three thousand wounded men. There are not more than about two thousand doctors on the battlefield of all nations, and a lot of the French had run away, some of them had been killed. there were fifty five thousand casualties on the day of waterloo that 's dead wounded and missing. Well, the British casualties were slightly higher than the Allied rate because a lot of their frontline troops were just that. And the French casualties are virtually impossible to be sure about because they go missing after the battle. They don't want to go back. They go home. And I think we often forget the horses because we know there were around 2,000 killed on the battlefield and that means about 6,000 wounded. All this is in two and a half square miles. You've got 55,000 bleeding men and 6,000 uh, dead or injured horses. And, of course, they transmit via their faeces and clostridium tetani this awful disease, tetanus, lockjaw. And you can see the body in intense spasm from the action of the neurotoxin on the neuromuscular junction. Even offering a patient a glass of water or drawing the curtains could incite a spasm. So they had to knock out teeth to feed... Um, patient down through a stomach tube and give them laudanum and nurse them in a darkened room. There were two survivors of tetanus at Waterloo. There's not much you can do on the battlefield except uh, um, counsel whether a patient's going to die or not, bandage the wound, which always makes a patient feel better, uh, staunch bleeding, and get them back to the regimental aid post as quickly as possible. The great thing is rapid evacuation. Don't do too much on the spot. That's why Princess Diana died. She should have gone straight to hospital. There were an hour in that underpass. That's wrong. You can operate on the battlefield. They did. There were three or four examples. But it's not the ideal operating room. And not easy because the light's poor and it's all very scary with things going on around you. Here you can see a mock-up of a field amputation. The French had a good medical service. At the beginning of the war, we did not. Uh, They had an efficient service because the Republican Army demanded that. Sprung ambulances carrying two or four patients, springs very important for comfort, dedicated stretcher bearers formed in, in 1813, and uh, surgeons with proper uniforms and so forth. But of course, by Waterloo, the French money was running out and it wasn't so well provided as you might imagine. But there you see a French field hospital in action with the ambulances running people in, stretcher bearers lumping the men into ground in order for treatment. If you were hit, um, this is us looking north towards Brussels, east is to my right, uh, and this is the Allied line here. If you were in a square here, you'd have to get nearly half a mile to the hospital. That's the main hospital of Mont Saint-Jean on the north-south road. There it is, my first visit in, in, in 1970, and it looked almost as it did on the day of the battle. I've had a painting picture to give you some idea of what the scene might have looked like on the day in the middle of the battle. The operating rooms were ill-lit, uh, probably safe from attack back there, it's about 400-500 yards back, but the light again was poor. Many surgeons operated by candlelight. The wounded 48 spring carts came down from Brussels to take the patients back to the various buildings in the city of Brussels that were used as hospitals. There were five principal hospitals, one for French and four for allies. And we could spend an hour talking about this, but obviously hemorrhage on the battlefield is the most risky business, and later infection, which was almost inevitable before Lister uh, invented his uh, antiseptic surgery. Pain relief uh, would be demanded by many, but often the stores of laudanum and opium were thin, and there were... Short of water and food, and you had to get bits of foreign material out of wounds, look after broken bones, which was a big problem. And they, until 1915, we didn't really learn how to look after uh, wounds properly on the battlefield. But when you look at the surgical armamentarium compared to physicians, and I know we've got one eminent physician in the room, with great respect, they only had about a dozen drugs, most of whom weren't terribly useful. Um, but the surgeons were actually gaining some impetus here. You know, they were able to amputate with a sort of 80% survival. Fracture management was poor. The practice of venesection by physicians and surgeons went on until 1830, 40, 50. But there were some surgeons who deprecated it even at these times and so on. So <coughs> surgery was uh, gaining in momentum and a lot of it had been accelerated on the battlefield. I looked at 700-odd wounds, personal anecdotes, French and British, and found that nearly two-thirds of wounds of those surviving patients were caused by musketry or carbine or pistol. Here you can see typical injuries here. I love the way Bell so poignantly paints the suffering on this man's face and how the tin or wood splints have run out and just using a bundle of straw to keep that fracture still. Round shot accounted, cannon shot, for about... 17% I suppose. But what we're looking at compared to today's high energy transfer, high velocity injuries, with lots of energy dissipating slowly, is this small amount of energy, because a round heavy lead ball, inefficiently fired, you're going to survive if you're hit at about 300 feet, or it's going to miss you completely. Nelson was shot at 21 metres, so he got 200 joules of energy. But that's actually quite a lot. If you're standing next to a brown vest and it hits you, it, it, at 40 paces, it's very unpleasant. And um, 200 joules, which is what Nelson was, the strength Nelson was struck at, is <coughs> equivalent to enough energy to break your thigh bone twice. And these are musket balls from this museum and, and, and case shot that were removed from patients during the battle by Professor Thompson and Charles Bell. When they went out to help, you needed long instruments to remove them because you couldn't widely expose the wound. You felt with a finger to see if the ball was palpable, if you could feel it. If you could, you could probably get it out with bullet forceps. It's actually quite difficult. Balls will run away in tissue planes and you can lose them. And the trouble is, with low velocity, low energy transfer, round, inefficient missiles, they carry clothing into the wound, as we alluded to before. That clothing is filthy, no soldier's tunic is free of bacteria and that was a great cause of implantation of sepsis. Overall, about 2,000 amputations over the four battles, over <coughs> the three days, 500 allied cases around about on the 18th of June. This is a Waterloo set we have in the English College showing the tourniquets, French tourniquets, the uh, Trefines, Scalpels, <coughs> Amputation Kits. this is a dedicated uh, amputation kit owned by Dr. Haddie James, who served at the lifeguards of Waterloo. And I went out to Australia partly to see this, and it had been bought for $40 in a car boot sale. And I knew the surgeon who'd used it at Waterloo. And actually, at the bicentenary commemorative service, I had to read some of this doctor's words to the audience. It was quite moving. Gordon, who you saw lying in Wellington's bed was struck on the thigh and operated on too quickly. He had a guillotine amputation and his blood pressure was low. And as it came up and the amputation stump was dressed, he started to bleed. And as I pointed out, he bled to death. That was while Dr Hume, who is Wellington's personal physician and surgeon, was taking off Uxbridge's leg for a compound knee injury. And you can see Wellington comforting uh, his... um, brother-in-law, but actually it didn't get on very well because Paget, Lord actually did run off of Wellington's sister. So they did treat each other professionally very well, and this is an apocryphal but delightful picture. But Paget had a flap amputation. You can see how much more tissue you have with creating a flap on each side of the bone to cover the bone end. And Paget could afford very expensive legs. You're looking at a thousand pounds a leg, made out of fruit wood, Articulated by leather and metal and also by kangaroo tendon so that every time you lifted your knee your foot came up so it didn't catch your toe in the cobbles of the street. Trephining or trepanning was done to relieve uh, depressed fractures uh, sorry, morsels of bone pushed down in the skull into the brain to relieve the pressure or to relieve the presence of a blood clot. And I think Chris these are two of your specimens again. But this one nicely shows a, a, a comminuted brain uh, injury and here a, a, an extradural collection, both <coughs> of which can be fatal. And here you can see, this is one of Bell's uh, teaching pictures, a depressed fracture. You don't do the trephine over the hole but near it. And, you, you, and therefore, after removing the bits of bone, you've got quite a big field of operation to stop bleeding or repair things that you have to repair. The most notorious case of trepanning was at the Battle of Cattrobras. And he got um, a ball into his frontal sinus. His name was Lieutenant Purifoy Lockwood of the 2nd Battalion of the Cambridge Regiment, the 30th of foot. And he had the ball removed on the battlefield, partly partly in Brussels, where they did two trefine holes, and made a big dent in his skull, because the bone doesn't heal over. It just... um, the skin heals. He didn't like the dent, and it must have wounded his pride. He's quite a good-looking young man, so he had a silversmith, make, made a silver plate to go over it with bombproof written on it. <laughs> and there you can see over his right uh, forehead, and that was kept in place with a silk bandana. He was known as Bomb-proof Lockwood, and he became governor of the um, uh, sort of uh, veterans' pension hospital in Dublin called Hillman Hospital, and was introduced to George IV as bomb George Guthrie, a scot irish surgeon, brilliant operator had shone during the Peninsular War so it really isn't a subject of this lecture but he did eventually go out to Waterloo and managed to disarticulate, remove the whole leg at the hip joint of a French prisoner of war called Francois de Gay that's the bullet entry wound that's the eventual scar but look at the magnitude of that surgeon without anaesthesia it took him just over half an hour he lost 300 sorry 700 mils of blood but was eating and perking up quite well on day three and he went back to Paris and the Duke of York insisted that the French government could be defeated of course gave him a generous pension and he was a wonderful advertisement for Scottish surgery on the battlefield of Waterloo and Waterloo teeth don't actually just refer to the Battle of Waterloo they were removed any big action because if you could remove these non-carious teeth from young men who couldn't afford the sugar that rotted the teeth of our young people today, um, would sell very well in Britain. They could make up dentures for the middle-class ladies who could afford the sugary stuff and got rotten teeth. And here you can have hippopotamus or walrus ivory and teeth uh, embedded into them as dentures. And the Duke of Wellington had such a set. Terrible slide to put before a, a general and public audience, but actually it's quite interesting because... This is early surgery, this is delayed surgery. These are deaths, and this is the region of the body operated on, or the procedure. What is interesting is, if you look at hip, thigh, and leg, there are 100 cases. If you look at arm and forearm, there are less than 50. And that's true, most injuries on the body were limbs, and much more common were leg injuries than um, arm injuries. And if you delay surgery, you put up the mortality considerably from 22 37%. to 37%. Well, there's a lot of controversy I can tell you about Waterloo. We had about 26 books written last year on the bicentenary and there are people still arguing about who won and what mistakes were made and all the rest of it. But nobody argues about the medicine. and Nobody foretells of all the bravery that was uh, suffered by so many people well into their after-Waterloo times. And here's an exhausted Duke of Wellington recommending that you just leave it alone. He never wanted to fight another battle. It was his last battle. It was a close run thing. But he said, by God, it would not have done if I had not been there. And I think those are very true words indeed. This is the last survivor of Waterloo, Elizabeth Gale, as she was born, father in the rifles. She's now married with her own child and husband. But there she is on the battlefield with her mother, helping dying men, dripping water into the uh, mouths of the wounded. Elizabeth, age five, did that. And she died in 1904. She was the last witness of Waterloo to die in Britain. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being so patient. Uh, Chris, I hope I haven't gone over time. But the thing is, next time is Remembrance Sunday, remember there are other wars, as well as World War I and II. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.